Hi, I'm Bill Mitchell, host of When Dating Hurts. Two years ago, I launched my dating violence podcast. Back then, I knew very little about recording, editing, or uploading to a hosting platform. Frankly, I didn't know what a hosting platform meant. When recording episodes, I needed it to be easy for me and my guests. You see, I was capturing highly emotional personal stories, and I couldn't have guests fiddling around, clicking buttons, starting and stopping over and over again. I launched with Zencaster, and I stayed with them. The reason is, it's just so darn easy. And today's Zencaster lets you record with high-quality audio and video. You can edit and distribute, too, all in one place. No more bouncing around from one platform to another to create your podcast. So if you're interested, go to Zencaster.com slash pricing and use my code when dating hurts, all one word, and you'll get 30% off your first three months of Zencaster Professional. I want you to have the same experiences I do for all my podcasting and content needs. Isn't it time to tell your story? I'm Bill Mitchell, and this is When Dating Hurts, a podcast dedicated to my daughter, Kristen, and all women taken from us before their time by the epidemic known as dating violence. I will speak with authorities in domestic violence, law enforcement professionals, families of victims and survivors, and survivors themselves. This begins part two of my two-part interview with psychotherapist, counselor, and abuse survivor, Katie Gillis. So when these relationships are going on and they're unhealthy relationships, they're troublesome, they're abusive, what do you think is really going on in the mind of the person who's doing the abusing? I mean, do you think this person means to be doing what he or she is doing? Do you think this is purposeful or do you think it's unintentional? It just comes out that way. We're talking about a whole lot of people you've heard about over the course of time. So in my experience, I think I've had, I think I've had experience with, with all of the above. I've worked with abusers who I feel like have had a lot of very serious trauma. Maybe they watched, you know, their mom be abused and in a moment of stress and crisis, they resorted to what they knew and they resorted to the actions that were ingrained in them from childhood. Um, and those are the people who I find in my experience, in my practice, will, will do, will, will feel bad. Um, and they'll be like, Oh, I can't believe I did that. I really want to get help. Sometimes there's substance use involved, sometimes not. Then there are the abusers who are like, Oh, I didn't do anything wrong. You deserve it. You know, and, and I know all abuse is dangerous and all abuse is, is not the victim's fault. So regardless of what the reason is, but I've seen really all, kind of all of those things. And then I've seen the abusers that are like, Oh, it never happened. It didn't happen that way. You know, that that's not what happened. You know, and then I've seen the ones that are like, Oh, you deserve this. I mean, I, I've, the ones that are cruel and malicious, I have the hardest time with. Um, the ones that are like, you know, oh, you deserved it or it didn't happen that way. Those are the ones I really have a hard time with. When somebody says it didn't happen that way, do you think they actually believe it didn't happen that way? Or do you think it's just they decided at some point in their life they never really do anything wrong? So it didn't happen that way. I didn't do that. You're making it up. You're making it a lot worse than it is. I mean, is it just they 
they decided somewhere along the line that they're kind of this impenetrable wall, do you think? I think sometimes, yeah, I think there's a lot of cognitive distortions um, with domestic violence. I think that there's, you know, a lot of elements of some personality traits that are that are very difficult that could sometimes lead to some of those cognitive distortions. And what I mean by cognitive distortions are like a, a reality that might not be the same, you know, experience or memories that we remember from our reality. You know, I've had situations where I've worked with families and couples where someone has literally not remembered punching a wall or something like that. And then when they're shown the pictures and then they're like, well, I don't know if that happened like that. I mean, I don't know. I think that there are a lot of times people, they really do kind of believe their own lies, especially if there are some elements of some personality traits that, that would lead to that. Then there are people who are like, I think they just, they don't care whether or not it's a lie or the truth. They just are kind of in their own world of dominance and control and that's they don't really care i don't think they think too much about it when you think about people who are abusive like serial abusers they've been doing it for a long long time would you ever lay a dollar bet down that you would see any of these people change a lot maybe not a hundred percent if the person is very self-aware and very willing to do the work i would put money on the fact that they could change somewhat i do think that all of us have the capacity to better ourselves if if we are self-aware and if we want to do the work. Someone who is a 22-year-old hopefully is a lot more immature than they are when they're a 52-year-old. I know for me, I would not date 22-year-old me. I would drive myself crazy because I was so immature and entitled. I mean, I was a 20-20-year-old. It's normal and that's age-appropriate. But what ends up happening is usually as you grow and mature, you develop self-awareness, you, you do the work of healing and you do the work of, of growing and maturing. So what ends up happening is like people who, you know, people who are, are aware of what they have done and they know why it's wrong and they're willing to work towards it. They're willing to work towards bettering themselves. I've seen people develop better coping skills and better coping mechanisms. I don't recommend that they do that in the same relationship. Like I would never tell a victim, oh, sit around and wait for him to change and sit around and wait for him to get better. No, I think that a lot of our healing needs to happen on our own. So, I mean, maybe if they have done some abusive things and then they want to work on themselves for some years and then that, that I think would be an exception, but rarely is it a situation where someone who is, you know, a serial abuser, you know, someone who's been in and out of the court system, who's mandated to have anger management therapy, for example. No, I think, I don't think that's going to work. Um, I think it's just, these are maladaptive coping skills that these people have. And, and when you get to a certain age, it, you're less likely to, to do the work of, of changing. I mean, if I see people in their late forties, late fifties who are acting like this, you're not 16 anymore. Not that the behavior is ever excusable and ever allowed, but a 16-year-old who screams and calls someone, you know, a, a fat pig or something like that is is not acceptable, but you're 16. If you're doing that 36, uh-uh. I hope that it makes does. sense. It does. It does. It's interesting, but I mean, when I think of a 16-year-old, I think of somebody you might be able to change. And a 56-year-old, yeah. I would think yeah. somebody that wouldn't change. But on the other hand, the 56-year-old may have more awareness of how they really are because they've seen they've seen their own exactly. act for 40 and, and, more years. Yeah. So that's why I struggle in my head to understand which one has a better chance of changing. 
yeah, the, the 56 year old can say, oh, you know, that that thing I did yesterday where I beeped loudly at the person crossing in the crosswalk, you know, that was not my best, my best day. I'm going to do better about knowing not to drive when I'm in that kind of state of mind, that kind of thing. Whereas the, the 16 year old is like, the road is mine. I'm going to beep at everyone. And that's like normal 16 year old stuff. But, you know, and that's something that is kind of like, it's kind of age it's inappropriate, but it's age appropriate inappropriateness, if that makes sense. But what ends up, you know, happening is like, we have, we have to grow and we have to mature and things like that. And so, and if we get to where we're in our thirties and forties and we're still doing the same inappropriate behaviors, then we haven't matured. None of us are ever going to be perfect, but we need to be able to, to say, okay, you know, this, this is something I needed, you know, to work on. And this is something that I'm uncomfortable about with myself and to be able to, to work through that. And so for someone who really is abusive, they have to have a lot of self-awareness and a lot of time and energy to do the work. That's a daunting thing. You know, when you think about somebody who's been that it is. It is. self-righteous, it somebody who's had so much control, right. I mean, you know, if you go from, let's say an, uh, what you might call a healthy relationship, mm-hmm. let's say the let's say decision-making or controls, let's call it 50-50. It's like, well, okay, I kind of want to do this. Mm-hmm. You want to do that, but we haven't done your stuff for a while. So let's do it. I'll be fine. And it's like, oh, okay, that's great. You know, we got there. And then over here, you've got mm-hmm. this kind of control addict and that person gets his way 98% of the time, you know, maybe more. Yeah. And so here we are saying to this person, okay, now look, you know, if you want a pathway out of the way you are, you're going to have to give up a lot of control. I mean, you've kind of been the king of everything and now you won't be. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's, that's got to be very hard to talk someone out of that spot. That's usually why whenever I have those kind of conversations, whether it's, you know, trainings or working with clients, I tell them, this is not something that I recommend even being a conversation when you're in the relationship mm-hmm. with the person, because clients come to me all the time. Like he, he wants to change. Can, can you help? He's going to change. He's going to do the work. I, I don't recommend that while you're in the relationship with the person because the change hasn't happened yet. And you're still in an unsafe situation. So it's like, it's like get away from each other, go work on yourself. And then may, then maybe, is that the thinking? Yeah. Because victims, like victims in, in these kind of relationships, they already have so much pressure on them, you know, to, to be the empathetic partner. Oh, well, they have a lot of history of trauma and they, you know, they've had a bad childhood and they've had this and, you know, that that's why he drinks and that's why he comes home angry. And, and you can be an empathetic person, but you still need to take care of yourself and you still need to be safe. And so what ends up happening is when we send victims the message that abusive people can change, then it creates like this false sense of hope. And they, they feel like they need to stay in the relationship because they need to give the person a chance to, to change. And I always say, that's not, you know, something that I, I recommend at all. You know, you need to be safe. It's just so hard. The whole thing is so hard, let's face it, because if you're it the is. abused person, the last thing you want to believe is that you have enabled the behavior that's happening to you. Exactly. You know, you have enabled it. The mere fact that you show up again, time and time again, or, you know, you nurse yourself through the last thing that blasted you, whatever it was. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then, you Mm -hmm. know, now we've got somebody who claims that they're going to try to change themselves. And you're thinking, wow, I want to be there for that. I want to help them get through that. Yeah. So there's a lot of guilt. And that's so weird. It all makes sense. It just doesn't work. I mean, that's what's so perplexing. Exactly. And, 
and it puts like a lot of pressure and a lot of responsibility on the victim instead of the person who you know needs to do the changing and the change needs to change their behavior and we end up you know as a society we really victim blame why didn't she leave why didn't she do this why didn't she just get a protection order why didn't she do this and so i feel like it kind of adds to that why do you think society does that do you do you have an opinion about that I think on one hand, it's human nature to want to ask questions about something that we don't have experience with. And so someone who hasn't been in an abusive relationship, their first mindset is to say, you know, because in in their mindset, in in their frame of reference, you're abused, you walk, you walk out of the room, Mm -hmm. you walk, you walk away. Easy easy decision. Just get out of there. Just go. Chapter closed. Yeah. So in their frame of reference, that is what would happen. So then they're wanting to know why someone else didn't do that because they don't know what the whole thing entails. So I think people are just, I think a lot of times it's just an innocent question. However, what ends up happening is is, is there's the the pressure of, of society and there's, you know, society has, why didn't you leave and why did you stay is, you know, a question that has so many elements and it, and it's, turned from like an innocent question to putting the responsibility onto the victim. And you see it on the news. You see it mm-hmm. everywhere. You know, just. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Why didn't she get a protection order? Why didn't she just. And that's the person you usually have access to anyway. Cause you mm-hmm. figure like, well, he's a lost cause, mm-hmm. but you on the other hand, I see this in shades of black and white. And we like blame. I mean, we, we see it right now online with celebrities who come forward about things like domestic violence. Like, there's, you know, a lot of times they, like women are easy targets, I think, like people of color are easy targets, um, gay people are easy targets, um, women are easy targets, because anyone who, you know, you can say, well, why is she acting like this? Or why did she say that? Or, you know, she's crazy, or this or that. And I, I think it anything we can say to kind of sow those seeds of doubt, you know, and society really kind of goes with that i think it's almost like if you don't get out of it then maybe you deserve what's happening in it like i've heard people say things like oh you know it's 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 2020 it's 2022 like you know women have equal rights why can't you just leave the relationship and and things like that or okay but then we have this stereotype that that abuse ends when the relationship ends you know why didn't she leave maybe because the leaving was harder than staying definitely definitely hear that i i did a yeah did an interview just last week and that's exactly the seesaw this woman was on, you know, going up and down at her end of it, because it was like, at least with him, I know what I've got without him. I don't know what I've got. So if I can just kind of like get through the bad days of what I've got, it's better than what's behind door number two over there, which is the the great unknown or what the way he'll act if I do walk. Yeah, exactly. The way he'll act if I do. Exactly. Yes. Sometimes the the stuff that you know is manageable. Yes. Sometimes you think it is. And then, but the stuff you don't know, you don't have them in front of you to calm them down, you know, cause you know how to calm them down. Yes. And so you don't have them in front of you to calm them down when they're making false complaints to DCFS or filing subpoenas for child custody or things like that, that so many of my clients deal with that are like, Oh, I'd, I wish he would just go back to hitting me. I'd rather him come home and yell at me than try to take my children from me. Comes a pretty obvious call. Yeah. Let's say someone comes to you and they're doing their therapy and you're trying to help walk them down that path of seeing the obvious. And finally, they come to you and say, okay, look, I mean this sincerely. I want out of this thing. 
Mm-hmm. What do you suggest they do then? What is the safe escape as you see it? So we develop an individually tailored safety plan for each person. And that depends on all their personal elements of their situation, whether they live together, whether they share children, whether they're married or not, whether they have shared assets, shared bank accounts or not, um, whether they have access to a car or a phone or not. Um, I work with clients who English and maybe is not their first language. Um, that's, you know, so that's another limitation. You know, do you have support people you can call that speak your language? Do you live in a rural area? How close are you to the police or domestic violence? So it really depends mm-hmm. on each person. The first thing is always protect living things first and foremost. Kids should not be around. Make sure kids are safe. Make sure pets are safe. Make sure you're safe first and foremost. Next, talk about the things that you care for the most that would have the most impact if they were taken or destroyed. And what I mean by that is anything like um, your passports. You know, if you have a visa, you know, or citizenship documentation for being here in the United States, work visa, anything like that, take copies of those, deed to your house, take the copy, title to your car. Because what ends up happening is when they can't hurt you or your kids or your pets or, you know, they can't hurt your you or your loved ones, they're going to target the next thing that's going to harm you. So employment, you know, any, anything like that, banking statements, change passwords and every single thing. Even if you are like, oh, I've already changed my password last month, do it again. Because, you know, our partners know us. They know if our password is is always, you know, Katie loves wine 2020. You know, they know our password. So change it to something that's like completely random, like, you know, broccoli 2020, whatever, you know, change it to like broccoli or like random, random words, things that they're not going to think of. Change it, change it again, change passwords for all banking, change passwords for like any kind of, like if you have a, a mortgage company, go in, change, you know, revoke access for your mortgage. You know, if you're, if you're not married and you're able to do so. Check everything like beneficiary, emergency contact at work. So they revoke access to them coming into your work and things like that. Especially if you have the kind of work where you have to scan in. So just things like that, because what ends up happening is they're going to look for like the next best thing to harm you. So they're going to look, they're going to show up at work. If they can't show up at home, they're going to show up at work. They're going to start showing up places where you frequent. So if you do have a Friday night bowling league, might need to switch that. Mm -hmm. Just like really start protecting yourself and like changing what your patterns are and changing up the places that you frequent. When you're that person and let's say you've done all the things that you have on your safety plan, escape plan, you've got them all lined mm-hmm. up, you know, you've got the passport and everything under control and you're ready to bolt. Does it come down to he, he goes off to work and boom, you're out of there? I mean, is that what it eventually comes down to if you were living in the same place? So it depends on the person, but if it's a situation like that where you think that there would be violence and you feel unsafe, I mean, first and foremost is your safety. So I would rather have people be like, oh, I kind of jumped the gun on that one, you know, where I kind of overreacted. And I'd rather have people overreact than underreact. Mm-hmm. You know, it's better to look back and be like, okay, I'm sorry, I, I acted a little rashly. And versus, you know, oh, I, sh- I should have left this morning and now I'm stuck mm-hmm. here overnight mm-hmm. with this person. So yeah, sometimes that does mean leaving in the middle of the day. Sometimes that does mean like a quick, you know, hey, you have two weeks to be out or or something like that. Um, I've had clients where I work with them on putting a down payment for an apartment outside. And then 
they had to buy. And this is, of course, you know, a privileged position to be in because they were financially able to do so. But, you know, putting furniture and hygiene products and everything in that apartment. And then all of a sudden, one day they left and they had to prepare for it and stuff like that. So it really depends on the person. But, yeah, safety is first and foremost, whatever that looks like for you. That's very wise. And that's that brings true with all the conversations I've had about safety is number one, mm-hmm. you know, you can think about all kinds of things, but if you're not safe, nothing else counts. It, it, exactly. Like you can plan, you know, you can plan for months. Oh, this is what I'm going to do. This is what I'm going to say. And I'm going to do this and that. And, and it's not going to turn out like that. It, it just doesn't because, you know, it'll either be worse than you imagined or better than you imagined. And you plan for it to be worse than you imagine, but hope it'll be better than you imagined. Now, have you had men come to you who are on the receiving end of abuse? Have you actually had them come to your practice? I have, yes. And usually what ends up happening, and I know this kind of does go off stereotypes, but it, there is you know, some, some truth to it. But most of the, the men who have come to me are victims of psychological abuse, like stalking and things like that. And I have had, had, men, had men come to me who are victims of physical abuse, but usually what I see in my practice is... is the men are more victims of like the the psychological elements. So like emotional abuse, um, you know, like I said, the stalking, the harassment, like the smears and, and things like that. The stalking is a huge thing. You know, she just keeps showing up at my work and, and everyone is like, well, this is five foot two woman walking in here. I'm not going to tell her not to. I mean, she, you know, she's, she just walked in with a coffee. What should I do? And, and then she goes in and she's able to, you know, obtain information and use that against him. And I've, I've, I work with clients who are medical professionals and attorneys whose wives have, out of retaliation, made complaints to like the Bar Association and the medical, medical board and things like that, just, just out of retaliation. So that's probably one of the most common things I see. I wasn't prepared for the stalking comment. That's interesting. Yeah. Right? Yeah. You know. In my clinical experience, I've had female clients tend to do things that are more psychological because women, we know... We're not going to be able to overpower. Most women are not going to be able to overpower most men. My current partner, I mean, he's twice as strong as I am. There's no way that I could ever overpower him. And even my female partner was very much stronger than me. There was no way I could overpower. However, like, and women are kind of conditioned, I think, to do more psychological abuse. Like women are not conditioned to be more violent. They're more conditioned to be things like the emotional elements and, and the psychological elements and stuff like that. So, but yeah, stalking is a huge thing and it's one of my like specialty areas and it's something that the court system really is just not trained as a systemic issue. The court system is really not trained to know like what it is that's going on because so much of stalking is, it is difficult to stop. How can you stop someone from being in a public place and how can you prove that they were 150 yards or whatever and how can you prove, you know, if they follow you into McDonald's and then you call the police, the police don't get there for five minutes. And then after a while, like the, the victims feel like they start to kind of look crazy because the police are like, you know, we, we don't know what to do. <laughs> I didn't see anybody. I mean, it, it, it's, it is, it's crazy making. And that's part of like that psychological element that they deal with. One woman I interviewed was being stalked by her ex. I don't recall right now if it was yeah. a husband or, or what the relationship was, but the ex would come by different days and maybe just bring the newspaper up yep. and put it on the front step. And there was yep. a protection order involved or, you know, he'd come by twice a week and get the, the, the garbage can and roll it up and put it next to the house, which looks to anybody like, Oh, what a nice guy. But it's like, no, he didn't do it to be a nice guy. 
did it to yeah. send a message that I'm still out here. I'm still kind of keeping an eye on you. Yeah, it is to send a message. It is to send a message. A lot of my clients will have like pictures of themselves posted online and stuff like that by next. And oh, okay. That would do it. It's done to say, I'm still in control. You know who did, you know who is who it is that brought this garbage can up and put it near the house. Like, you know, it's just a reminder. Where I always used to put it, rolling it up to that spot, just so you know, yep. it's my signature spot, right? Yep. And then when you go to the police, the police are like, so what's the problem? They help you take out the trash. Like, what's the issue? Because they yeah. don't see. He's harassing me. What does he do? He uh, he brings a newspaper up. Oh, really? Yep. Yep. Wow. See? Real tough guy. Yeah, I know. Yeah. And so because what happens is like law enforcement, just like the courts, they're looking for, you know, the violent abusers. They're looking for, oh, well, he, you know, he ran up to me in public and, and shoved me onto the ground or things like that. That's the only time they can really intervene. Right. So Katie, somewhere along the line in your career, you have some books you wrote. Yes. Tell us what, what they're called, where they can be found and talk about your books. So in 2021, I published my book, Invisible Bruises, How a Better Understanding of the Patterns of Domestic Violence. No, I love that name, by the way. I, I think that name is just so strong. It's wonderful. Yeah, it's great. It's how a better understanding of the patterns of domestic violence can help victims navigate the court system or the legal system. That was about basically the difficulties that people deal with trying to obtain protection and trying to get a protection order. So that is kind of like the, the beginning of like going and getting a protection order. What does that look like? Preparing for court and, and all that. And then I just published last month on uh, my second book, It's Not High Conflict, and I'm using my air quotes. It's not high conflict, it's post-separation abuse. And that is for what the courts refer to as high conflict couples. And so whether there's a, a divorce or anything like that, where there's like uh, intense like, child custody uh, arguments and things like that going on, or child custody disputes and things like that, and how to like navigate that, you know, how, how to go about like finding a lawyer. What should you say to your lawyer? Should you even get a lawyer? Um, and then how to, to navigate the feelings that come up, like the, the anxiety and the depression and the feelings of isolation. Because so, when victims are going through this, it, it is really isolating because people really don't understand. Because domestic violence is one of those topics that people are like, oh, I don't know anyone dealing with that. So I, I don't want to get involved in that kind of conversation. And, and it, and it mm. does... You know, and then there's so much victim blaming. Oh, well, it's just the two of you. It's a toxic relationship or things like that. So there's a lot of isolation. So there's a lot of like tips and tools in the books to, to kind of like navigate that for people and to help work through some of that. And you've also written articles for Psychology Today. Yep. I have a regular blog with Psychology Today called Invisible Bruises is this name of my first book. So I, I published about um, relationship and family trauma. So working through the feelings that come up with domestic violence and, and working with the feelings and the stressors that come up with things like that. I've been on, uh, let's see, Newsweek, Psychotherapy Networker, CB24 News, uh, iHeartRadio, mm. SiriusXM. Yeah, I've been around. <laughs> Well, that's, uh, you're so prolific. So that's great. Do you have any other books kind of like in the, in your mind, in the pipeline sort of? Yeah, I have one that should be out by, I'm saying May, but publication is always weird. So like hopefully May and it's the six stages of healing from family trauma. Oh boy. That should be out hopefully May. Now, how could you have a book that came out last month and you might have a book that comes out in the next few months? Excellent question. I'm glad you asked because I know people are going to ask. So the one that I just published last month was actually written last year. The publication started in October. 
and so it takes sometimes months to get something published because you have to do like a cover editing and like the editing process and all that. So this book that I, that I put when I published in 2021, it was written the year before. The one that I just published last month was written last year and finalized last fall. Okay. And I guess the blog is anytime you dial into it, right? You kind of go in, see what people are talking about and you throw some thoughts in there and then... I try to publish every week on Psychology Today, but sometimes it depends. Like sometimes a couple of weeks will go by, but... My contract is I have to publish at least once a month, but I usually do. I try to do every week, but it's, it really is like um, things I notice in my practice. Maybe I'll post like tips or tools for healing. Mm-hmm. A common one is like, you know, how do I talk about, like, how do I describe my abuse to, to the judge? Like, how do I talk about it in objective terms and things like that? Those are great hints. They really are. People dealing with anxiety, what comes to mind? I used to hear about things like, uh, anxiety attacks, panic attacks, and things mm-hmm. like that. And and I didn't really experience one until the year my daughter was killed. Oh, yeah. You know, then I got it. Oh, yeah. That, yeah. And uh, I, I seriously felt at that time, like, I really, it, it, it the way I describe it, I can still picture it, and even though it's 18 years later, but I felt like I had fallen into this abyss inside myself. Okay. Mm-hmm. Like I was down into this well, but it, the well happened to be my own body mm-hmm. and I couldn't see anything. I was totally blind and couldn't really hear anything except myself gasping to breathe. Mm-hmm. And it's like, okay, yeah. now I get it. I get how bad that can be. That's really mm-hmm. bad. Really bad. Yeah. And it kind of like, I remember when we first started talking, you, you used the word terror. Yes. I love that word because that is really what it is. And, and so victims who are struggling with things like panic attacks and anxiety, you know, your mind lives in, in like that moment of that feeling of terror for so long, you know, our minds, we're not supposed to live in that kind of moment. Mm-hmm. We're supposed to be, you know, if, if you think of like from, from an evolutionary standpoint, you know, our ancestors, the mammoth was coming and, and we had a fight or flight. As soon as the danger was over, you have to come back to a state of no- normal equilibrium, normal, normal being. If not, if you're constantly, if the danger is constantly there, you're going to have things like GI issues. You're going to have things like headaches. You're going to have things like panic attacks, you know, because our mind, you're not, we're not supposed to always be up like that. So when I work with clients who have anxiety, we talk about ways to recognize that anxiety in your body and bring it down. Sometimes that's, we start at square one of like, where do you feel the anxiety in your body? Focusing on decreasing the anxiety will help so much with managing all of the aftermath and helping with the re-traumatization. Something I had read about anxiety made it sound like if you were going through that, you see it coming, you know, and then it's getting worse and worse, and you're thinking, oh, my God, I don't want this to be happening, but it keeps happening, and, you, and you're going there. Something I had read, and believe me, this is like no evidence, you know, as to where this came from, made it mm-hmm. sound more like, hey, if it's go- if it's coming, go with it. I mean, don't try to turn psychologically yeah. in your own head and run the other way. Go with it because especially the way it typically goes. Now, if you have it for hours and hours and days and days, I'm sure you're going to be in a bad spot. But typically, if you kind of go with it, it will run its course and you'll be all right. That's what I say to clients. I, you know, I'll say things and, and my clients know me. They know me. They know that I'm kind of, you know, I use humor a lot in, in therapy. So I say this not to, not to poke fun in any way. I'm, I'm someone who suffers from anxiety, so I, I understand it. But I say, you know, no one's ever died from from an anxiety attack. And sometimes, although that sounds like I'm making fun or minimizing, that sometimes is enough that someone who is suffering a panic attack needs to hear that. Because I know for me, like when I'm in a panic mode, 
knowing, okay, no one's ever died from this. I'm not going to die from this. Sometimes that helps me go from like a 10 to a nine and a half. And once you get to like a nine and a half, then you're like, okay, breathe. And then it comes down. It will eventually come down. Anxiety does get to a peak and then it'll come down. And so you're right. The more that we try to fight it and say, don't be anxious, don't be anxious, don't be anxious, the more it can actually exacerbate the anxiety. So just saying, yep, I'm anxious. Okay, where do I feel it? Do I feel it in my, you know, in my teeth, in my neck, in my jaw? Like just kind of recognizing it like that. I imagine there are all kinds of techniques too, breathing techniques mm-hmm. and different things like that to kind of work your way through it, you know, mm-hmm. too. I, I've noticed before giving speeches, oftentimes I have to do breathing techniques or squeezing yeah. the arms of a chair or something like that to the point where my mm-hmm. arms ache. But once you let go, you, you feel this big pressure let down. and Yeah, you feel the relief. You feel uh, much better. Mm-hmm. Katie, is there anything that you think we should talk about, you want to talk about before we head out here? today i think we covered everything and i think that that yeah i'm really glad that you're, that you're talking about you know all the stuff that you do and going around and and covering this very much needed topic i'm glad about that too and i mm-hmm. i remembered how much i love listening to podcasts and i just thought wow you know this could open me up to talking with all kinds of people like you today oh, I didn't, yeah. i'd never imagined i'd get to somebody at your level so i think this is so fabulous well, thank you you're welcome because you're there I've been very fortunate that a lot of people have trusted me with carrying their stories along and, and then having access to people like you. You know, I just, again, I've never mm-hmm. dreamed of it, but you know, you're someone I really appreciate. And, and I did not know before we spoke today that you had had this happen to yourself. Oh, I did want to ask you this mm-hmm. question from the baseball bat incident to finally having that person really out of your life. How much time passed? So the baseball incident, so I've been, I'm in New Orleans and it was Mardi Gras which is that year was about mid-February. So I would say it was, I mean, we broke up in 2019 and this happened in 2020. Mm-hmm. But it's, I mean, it was probably a good, probably good couple of years. I, I had an 18 month protection wow. order, which in the state of Louisiana wow. is almost unheard of. Usually, it, usually they'll give three months, six oh. months. And that was just because it was, it kept happening. Like it was like, she came back and vandalized my home. You know, I have a Nest camera system, so it was all on camera, and which was like, thank God I had that on camera because all I did was play that. My my lawyer at the time played that in front of the judge, and the judge was like, just the judge was like, this is not stopping. He told me he's like, this is the longest I'm allowed to give you legally in the state of Louisiana. Like, I cannot give you more than than this. And so he's like, you know, at the end of 18 months, you can come back, and it ended up being a two year one because of the pandemic, you know, court dates were extended and stuff like that. So it ended up being a full yeah. two years. So yeah. 2022, Mardi Gras of wow, 2022. that's remarkable. Which is almost unheard of in Louisiana. Yeah, yeah, I was thinking you might say after the baseball bat part that five or six months, I didn't expect it would really just keep rolling along. And No, two years and it was, and it's even still kind of going on now, like just different stuff coming up and stuff. It's, some people are just never going to leave, especially like, because now I'm, you know, now I'm an, speaking out, I'm an advocate, you know, and I'm talking about, you know, how to help other people and publishing books and stuff like that. And so people aren't going to like that. <laughs> They're not going to like being, cause I, I didn't stay quiet. I didn't, it, it starts every year. It affects me less and less because there's not much you can do, you know, after you've already done the worst things. You, I mean, I know that yes. there's, you yeah, know, there can be more, but that's, you've probably seen the, you've seen the menu at this point. Yeah. Like, yeah, but I mean, it's just, I'm just like, okay. Yeah, no, it was, I got two-year protection order, which was like almost unheard of. Oh, that's strong. 
And even that didn't stop it, but. (laughs) I hear all the protection order stories and I've yet to get to one where it really seemed to to really become that shield everybody thinks it is. It's really paper. Yeah. I mean, I had a two-year protection order on paper, but that doesn't mean that I was not bothered for two years like at all. (laughs) Definitely does not mean that. Thank you so much for stopping and talking with me today on the podcast here. And, you know, you're someone who has experienced this. So whatever you knew about it before then, it certainly made it crystal clear for you. And you've studied it, you write Mm -hmm. about it, you do all these things. It's amazing what you do. And you've taken your experiences and everything and chosen to help other people. And I'm sure they really get a lot out of coming to see you or call you or spend time with you. So well, thank yeah, you. and and thank you yeah, for thank you sharing for with us today. This is just great. Thank you so much for doing what you do too. I, it's so nice to to see you taking what happened to you and your family and using it to help other people and raise awareness and, and stuff like that. I appreciate that. I I have no doubt that this yeah. is probably hoping to influence others to to find a better mm-hmm. way to live and and to be safe and and to get yeah. away from people who are who are hurting them in one way or another. So. Yep, I can relate to that for sure. Thank you for helping me do this. Thank you so much. This ends part two, the final episode of my interview with Katie Gillis. Thank you for listening. I'd like to thank my guests and my listening audience for their support. It is clear our listeners look for and play survivor episodes above all others. They get caught up between the forces of good and evil. All the time pulling for the moment a victim becomes a survivor. I am open to other victims and survivors who want to join with me on the When Dating Hurts podcast. We can shine a bright light on the epidemic of dating and domestic violence. We can improve lives and save some innocent people from a lifetime of broken dreams. If you want to tell your victim or survivor story, please contact me at Mitchell at WhenDatingHurts.com. That's Mitchell at WhenDatingHurts.com.